The wisdom of men is small, and the ways of nature are strange. And who shall put a bound to the dark things which may be found by those who seek for them? Wheel of Genre, the podcast that is all wrapped up in your favorite books. That was the best mummy pun I could do. I'm Zach. Boo! I'm Bob. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> gotcha, good. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, and we are reading scary stories that go bump in the night and that bang on their coffin sarcophagus walls. <laughs> this week we got Lot 249 by Arthur Conan Doyle. And hey, by the way, if you like the show and you want to support it, head on over to our Patreon, where we are publishing deep dive content. For, for instance, this week we are releasing our episode on the 1931 Dracula film with Bela Lugosi. Did you know that Lugosi was buried in the Dracula cape? If you're looking for other ways to support, review and subscribe on your local podcast platform. All right, Lot 249. Bob, what did you think of this one? Wow. Okay, we got Egyptology. We got Weird Roommates. I... When we've read H.P. Lovecraft, what we found is the scariest thing is people's reaction to the scary things. And I love this, the people getting more and more worked up about what could be happening. And I think my favorite moment is, is the first big scare. We'll come to that later. But lots of fun. I think it's a fun adventure story with a, with a kind of scary monster. What did you think, Zach? I, I didn't know what to expect. We have hmm. Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, Mr. Sherlock. And Mr. Mr. Challenger, the, the man known for writing adventure stories and mystery stories, dipping his toes into the pool of horror. And you know Ooh. what? I, yeah, I think, I I think yeah, sent a cold chill up his spine, I do believe. This was interesting just in terms of like, you know, kind of the origins of the universal monsters. Who are the original people writing about mummies reanimated and back <laughs> from the dead yes yeah, so, well apparently this is the first story to use a reanimated mummy for malicious purposes to use use a reanimated mummy that goes and attacks people so it's said to be an inspiration for a lot of our modern day zombie books where you reanimate dead flesh and it kind of mm, does your bidding or goes off on its own and becomes kind of a, a chaotic influence on the story. So it's a very important story in horror, even though it's only 20 pages. I like your connection to the zombie there, because where was it? We were just talking about the difference between hmm. different kinds of zombies, the history of zom <laughs> zombieism. You know, on our Patreon bonus episode, Zach, about Bella Lugosi. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> yeah. God, I uh, <laughs> unintentional for sure. But so, yeah. So one of the things that we were talking about was how, you know, the modern zombie, it always has this kind of scientific, rational explanation like, oh, it's a virus. It's a fungus. Mm -hmm. It's maybe even space radiation, cosmic rays, whatever. But the older zombie tends to come from like these voodoo traditions, like the encounter between kind of the Western world between, you know, this to them very strange thing going on where people are claiming to reanimate the dead. So where we previously encountered that kind of zombie, what was that book called? It was from Weird Tales. Lloyd Arthur Eschbach wrote a book called Isle of the Undead, novella called The Isle of the Undead. That was a banger. I like that one. But yeah, that was a you, great had, story. you had a kind of like dark shaman type, basically taking over the bodies of people and kind of reanimating them to do evil bidding. And I think that what we have going on here is a very similar thing. It's just instead of coming from like a Caribbean or African tradition, 
well, Egypt is in Africa, but you know what I mean. <laughs> mm. It's it's specifically from the Egyptology domain. It was apparently important too because we have Frankenstein, where you know animated flesh comes from electricity. But this was said to be important because it was using a ancient text to bring something back. And I think we see that a lot in Lovecraft, where you where you stumble onto ancient texts and then you get into lots of trouble. Or we see it in lots of movies today too, especially kids movies related to horror like kids horror you find an old book it's an ancient book something bad happens or in the evil dead the most recent one you find an evil cursed album you play it the evil dead are going to come get you i like being immersed in this kind of egyptomania that was going on at the time of sir arthur conan doyle he was very into it he was also into different kind of occult things and into seances but this obsession that was going on at the time in england for egyptian things is quite cool. I can't say mummies are frightening, but the excitement of being in something and immersed in something that's in the basement and he's got all of these ancient things. I want to read a quote because I found this very cool. It says, quote, in the basement with Edward Bellingham, the guy who's reanimating this this mummy, he has all of these things that he's collected. So here it is, quote, this is his room. Above were bull-headed, stork-headed, cat-headed, owl-headed statues with viper-crowned, almond-eye monarchs and strange beetle-like deities cut out of the blue Egyptian lapis lazuli. Horus and Isis and Osiris peeped down from every niche and shelf, while across the ceiling a true son of the old Nile, a great hanging-jawed crocodile, was slung in a double noose. So his room is quite exciting. It makes you think, ooh, something magical could happen down here. So they're in the UK, right? They're in Oxford. It's it's almost like a boarding school feel to this to this story in the sense of what we have is a bunch of students. And you can imagine, you know, your kind of weird neighbor who you have a perfectly normal student dorm. They have priceless artifacts <laughs> that are looted from, <laughs> you know, the Great Pyramids that are just they 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 don't have a life outside of this kind of interest this obsession for them and he's he's described as being just a whiz with near eastern languages so our two real heroes abercrombie smith great name by the way and william monkhouse lee another great name are kind of discussing this third person this person they find kind of weird edward bellingham our egyptomaniac And Monkhouse Lee says, they say he's one of the best men in his line that they've ever had in the college. Abercrombie Smith says, medicine or classics? Lee says, Eastern languages. He's a demon at them. Chillingworth met him somewhere above the second cataract last long, and he told me he just prattled to the Arabs as though he had been born and nursed and weaned among them. He talked Coptic to the Copts, Hebrew to the Jews, Arabic to the Bedouins, and they were all ready to kiss the hem of his frock coat. So this this person has this uncanny ability with languages that allows him a kind of like special cultural access, I guess you could say. On, on one level, you you kind of view him as a character who our protagonists view as, you know, part one of them, part other, part strange, part foreign because of his abilities. On the other hand, I'm kind of reminded of someone like Professor Moriarty. We're not dealing with a dumb villain here. We're dealing with someone who clearly has some some gray matter up in their noggin. I like how this story is very subtle in how it builds its horror. 
And I like how menacing the, the the little scene that Monkhouse paints for us there is because he says, oh, he's so, he calls him a demon for one, but then he says, he's so good at these languages. He never comments on the, the scene as being weird, but when I'm reading it, I'm thinking, that is very odd. Why are they bending down and kissing his frock? And why are they all, <laughs> why is everyone looking up to him like this weird creature? I think he is probably already starting to do some strange things and he might already have some of these powers at hand reanimating a mummy must be pretty advanced in his his egypt know-how but talking to these people i don't think it's just the languages i think he's up to something up to something dangerous already well they they describe him as having like an evil liver which is to say that he somehow gives in to his desires he, he has some kind of wickedness about him but hmm. let's go back to his bedroom the the room that they go inside and they see all of these, you know, these these deities up there, <laughs> these cat-headed deities. Because it says, in the center of this singular chamber was a large square table, littered with papers, bottles, and the dried leaves of some graceful palm-like plant. These varied objects had all been heaped together in order to make room for a mummy case, which had been conveyed from the wall, as was evident from the gap there, and laid across the front of the table. The mummy itself, a horrid, black, withered thing, like a charred head on a gnarled bush, was lying half out of the case with its claw-like hand and bony forearm resting upon the table. So just imagine, if you will, going into your weird roommate's place and they have actual human remains <laughs> out on display, like on the table where people like put their drinks, you know, he's got a coffin <laughs> with not even like a sealed mummy. It's got its claw like hand resting on the table. Unbelievable. Outrageous. Now, this is my app. This is my favorite moment in the story. And I think the scariest moment Earlier, I mentioned it when we read H.P. Lovecraft. The scariest moment is often the people's obsession with the scary thing that they saw, the horror that they experienced, because they can never be the same after it. When we we describe this room, we describe this room, we describe this room, then Abercrombie and Monkhouse Lee go down into it to find out where Bellingham is. They go to find out where Bellingham is. And it says, they see all these things, and then it says, quote, Propped up against the sarcophagus was an old yellow scroll of Pyrus, and in front of it, in a wooden armchair, sat the owner of the room, his head thrown back, his widely opened eyes directed in a horrified stare to the crocodile above him, and his blue, thick lips puffing loudly with every expiration. Then Monkhouse says, oh my god, he's dying! I think that's that's incredible. He's been so terrified that he has almost been killed and he's sitting in back <laughs> in his chair, leaned back as if he's just been hit with a jet engine. <laughs> and he's turned to blue like a Looney Tunes a cartoon. <laughs> like a Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> what do you make of this trance? I mean, what what's going on there, do you think? I assume it's the first time the I don't know, but a life. And he's probably been trying to do it, almost like an alchemist, trying to make this happen, trying to make this happen, reciting these ancient texts, and finally it comes out and reaches for him. That's what I imagined happening. Mm. What did you make of it? I don't know. I mean, it talks about how he's looking up at that crocodile up oh, above. Oh, yes, that's true too. And and yeah, so there's a couple there's a couple different things. It's totally ambiguous what has happened. I agree with your reading in that, you know, the human remains are definitely out on the table <laughs> with as <laughs> though the hands have moved. But he is looking up at the crocodile and he seems terrified. And to me, it it, it almost read like someone who's having like a bad trip, you know, like yeah, yeah. like guys messing with magic and he and he 
enters a dark realm for a, for a minute or something like that. I don't know, but it definitely doesn't make him look good. You know, <laughs> mm. doesn't it, you know, it only adds to his kind of characterization as an obsessive, a weirdo, you know, they call him a crank, a crank, but I'm going to come out and say it. I, I, I sympathize with him. I like him. He's, he's the classic. See, I don't, here's the thing. I, I don't see evil coming from the mummy to me in the story. The mummy is a puppet. I don't necessarily see evil coming from him. Edward, Edward Bellingham to me doesn't seem like someone who's wicked and is using magic to do even more wicked things. He seems like a nerd who got in too deep and it's this kind of like, like a Renfield. Yeah. Well, Renfield is a perfect example. Like people who aren't bad, but they just kind of get caught up in things. And, and Mm. I, and I kind of get that feeling like they end up doing quite bad, bad things. But to me, Edward Bellingham doesn't seem malicious or at least at the very beginning. I think when we see him, he's had that fright. He's had that terrible thing. And then he is so happy about it. That that signaled to me he's going to be doing something malicious. He's seen the most terrifying thing he's ever seen in his life, and he loves it. He's going around (laughs) gloating about this. He is someone who's studying the occult. He's studying ancient texts that's very impressive. He's mastered all of these languages, so he's someone very interesting. He's someone that you can easily sympathize with and think, wow, this guy's pretty cool. The other two are kind of boring characters, and they're just complaining about him all the time. So I don't really trust their judgment of him. But I do start to see when this golem-like creature, you know, when Bellingham sends it out, it seems to do his bidding, or at least it causes, or it does great violence against people who would otherwise oppose him. Because Edward Bellingham is betrothed to William Monkhouse Lee's little sister. He keeps mentioning that. He's like, oh God, I don't know about this guy. I don't know if he's a good fit for my sister. He's kind of creepy. They think, no, he's not that creepy. Later, it turns out he's very creepy when the mummy comes and tries to murder William Monkhouse Lee by pushing him far out into the waves where he'll drown. For sure, for sure. He kind of becomes like, you know, maybe it's like a absolute power corrupts absolutely kind of a kind of a thing. You know, mm. as soon as you realize that you're the puppet master of an undead mummy, you know, <laughs> let loose. <laughs> yeah. But I love I love, love, love the moment of discovery around William Monkhouse's Lee's near drowning in which we have Abercrombie Smith. He needs to return some object to Bellingham's room. And he walks in and he notices the mummy case is empty. And he says, oh, that's weird. You know, not too weird, but that's weird. But then he's walking down the staircase after he's dropped off whatever, you know, he's done. And he feels something brush by him. And, you know, it could be anything, you know, maybe maybe an animal, maybe maybe a gust of wind. But he doesn't really think anything of it. But then we find out that Lee has been nearly drowned. And, you know, through the twists and turns of the plot, he finds himself once again in Bellingham's room where he finds... The mummy is back in its coffin. And that is a true horror moment. Like, I love <laughs> that kind of reveal. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't expecting much for, for Conan Doyle in horror, but he, I thought he knocked it out of the park here. Yeah. I don't find a mummy scary. Here it's interesting because it's small and it's fast and it's vicious and very strong. But when I think about a mummy wrapped in bandages... I think of Scooby-Doo and a mummy going very slow. Did the portrayal of mummies 
especially like cartoon mummies. Big horror authors, H.P. Lovecraft and Anne Rice, say this is a very terrifying story. I did not feel very terrified during this story. How did you feel about it? Did the portrayals of mummies in the last few years change it for you? Well, I think Hollywood has definitely nerfed the mummy in the sense of making them drag their feet, stumble, arms out, kind of just this like slow force that's always coming towards you. The mummy we get here, you know, he's running at full speed away from this mummy across the field. It's a great scene. Abercrombie Smith running as fast as he can. And the mummy, which was first walking towards him quickly, then kind of gets on all fours and runs like a dog. And it's, you know, behind him and it's snarling and kind of snapping its teeth at his heels. And, you know, there's this kind of physical transformation that happens that you're not expecting. And I think that's so effective in terms of horror because- you know, when, you, when you're dealing with a, a villain, when you're dealing with a monster specifically, I think it's important to not know the full rules of what they can and can't do. Mm. When the mummy reveals itself to be a kind of Swiss, Swiss army pocket knife of various cutting tools, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and it switches modes and, and gets you in a way that you're not expecting. That's, that's scary because you don't know what other tools are hiding in that, that Swiss army knife. That being said, the way they kill this mummy, I thought was a little too easy. So like, what what does he do? He says he gets a gun and he goes up to Bellingham and he says, he puts the gun on him and he says, you're going to cut up this mummy and burn it and burn the papyrus or I'm going to shoot you. And Bellingham does it and the mummy is presumably gone. And I thought Mm. that that kind of defeat was befitting for the scale of the evil that we're dealing with, you know, as a kind of, you know, functioning as a kind of like Egypt zombie, that's the right way to kill it and to end the story. But I think that most of the time when we, when we see mummies in Hollywood, it's like this kind of vicious presence that has survived its own death Hmm. through force of will and alchemy and things like that. I was expecting something, speaking of alchemy, more alchemical or something to do with those ancient texts, that ancient papyrus. I think usually when you open like that kind of Pandora's box, you find that ancient text, you read it, and then all hell breaks loose. You have to go back to that ancient text to do something about it. You have to close the portal or undo the spell or remove the instructions from the golem's head. It is a little anticlimactic, but I do like how they have to break it apart it shows the brittleness of the mummy. And I thought that was a really nice part of this mummy. It's not clean and wrapped in gauze. It's this old brittle corpse. Bellingham has to take a, what does he take, a hammer or a knife? And he just has to break it apart. And he breaks it apart and spices come out. Do you think that fans of Sherlock Holmes would enjoy this book? There is a little Sherlock Holmes-like moment and where, where, where it's very mystery. But in general, I think the Sherlock Holmes books we found are pretty adventure. Like they're not as cut and dried mystery as Agatha Christie. They're more adventure with a mystery plot. But there is a moment in this where I feel like it's very, very Sherlock Holmes. They are trying to, Abercrombie Smith comes and accuses Edward Bellamy. This is when he has his gun and he says, okay, you're going to tell me the truth. I know what you're doing. You're using this mummy to come and harass us. You've tried to murder two people. Now you're going to stop. And Bellingham says, certain, he says, quote, certainly you come out with your nerves all unstrung and your head full of this theory of yours. Some gaunt, half famished tramp steals after you and seeing you run is emboldened to pursue you. Your fears and imagination do the rest. So Abercrombie Smith starts laying out his evidence and then 
Bellingham's like, no, your evidence is illogical because of point A, point B, point C. So I think it does make you feel quite a bit like you're involved in a mystery or at least (laughs) maybe like a courtroom drama, I guess. And I think that moment is kind of preempted by all of the evidence gathering. And Mm -hmm. this, this to me is what made me be like, oh, we got Conan Doyle on the case here, (laughs) which is the servant of these boys. They have a servant. Thomas Stiles notes that when Bellingham leaves, there's a sound of pitter pattering, you know, in his house, something's walking around and Smith confronts him on this. And, and what Bellingham says is, oh, I've got a dog. And Smith says, oh, well, I'm a bit of a dog fancier myself. Maybe you'll let me have a look at it. And Bellingham says, oh, uh, yeah, but you know what? It can't be tonight. I have an appointment. And oh, my gosh, is that is that clock on the wall, right? <laughs> I'm 15 minutes already late for my appointment. Ex- you'll excuse me, I'm sure. But then what happens is Bellingham leaves Smith's room goes downstairs and Smith doesn't hear him go out to his appointment. He hears him go into his room and lock the door. Mm. So Smith knows that he's lying and quote, Smith knew that his neighbor had no dog. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there's, there's all these moments leading up to it. These moments of kind of like disharmony where the story doesn't add up. And to me, that feels like, the detective move of like gathering evidence and being like, what are all these mysteries and kind of going over it again and again and again, trying to figure out what it is. And then slowly we're given pieces that complete the puzzle. Mm, Detecting the lies, detecting the lies, unraveling the mysteries and ultimately resolving the case for the side of lightness and good. I think that, (laughs) You know, it's like it's it's very much a kind of detective adventure hero mood. You couldn't imagine Sherlock. You couldn't imagine this being written as a Sherlock Holmes story like it wouldn't work. But I think that it it exists in the same world as Sherlock Holmes, if that makes sense. One thing I especially liked about this is all of the rumors that the mummy is being seen around town and different people are being attacked. It's not just Monkhouse Lee. He just happens to be the one who's brutally attacked. But there are quite a few people who are being harassed by this thing or seeing it jump through the trees or seeing it run by them. And they all think it's an escaped ape. I like that element of we have a supernatural thing and the way that people encounter that supernatural element is to try to think of every non-supernatural, every every natural thing that it could possibly be. But mm. like as a move of like, they give these examples, but the explanatory framework only answers some but not all of what they're seeing. I think that's a good move to have in terms of writing supernatural and paranormal short stories. Do you think, why is that? Do you think that it's people's imaginations as these characters, their imaginations running away with them? So they start to think that it is something that it could not possibly be. So it's not explained to us from the author, but these other characters are saying, oh, it must have been an escaped ape who broke the glass of my cookie store and chased down my brother. Is it the the excitement of being exposed to people's imaginations running away with them? Well, I I mean, can you blame them for not thinking, oh, it must be a reanimated mummy? <laughs> you know, You know what I mean? Like, I feel like everything they say, no matter how outlandish, is always slightly more plausible than what the actual truth of it is. And and I think that's what's fun is like that kind of like, well, what are all the other things that it could be? What are people speculating about? What are people gossiping about? It also, you know, this is a very 
closed story. We only get like three real characters, four if we count the servant, five if we count the sister who's off screen the entire time. And six if we count the mummy. Six if we count the mummy, a non-speaking role. This could be a very closed story that, that really only takes place amongst very few people. But when you kind of bring in this outside world, the town and what they're gossiping about, I think it makes it feel like it exists in a real place. That's what I really love about it. When we read Dracula, it's the same thing. When Dracula comes off the boat and is as a dog going around, the whole town is talking about the dog and thinking, oh, we'd all love to adopt the dog. And then it starts killing other dogs. It starts showing up. It starts attacking other people. And everyone's talking about what what is wrong with this dog? People become very fixated on this disaster that's happening around them. And it's in a very effective way because it's only a few sentences. But we get to see the, the fear and why this monster is scary through many different lenses all at once. So you're right. It is kind of like a little chamber play where we've got our three main characters who actually speak, two characters kind of referred to, and the mummy plagues them. But the story comes to life in a much bigger way now when we see the ape jumping through the trees. So we've read Dracula. We did mummies. So we've got vampires and mummies on, you know, checked off our list. I'll tell you what I like about both of them. I like that with both of them, it's this thing from the distant past this kind of pre-modern world that's kind of coming back and re-emerging. And as it re-emerges, it's monstrous. And what I'm curious about as we go forward is how often will the monster be tied to a kind of buried past? Mm -hmm. And do we ever see monsters that come from the other side of time, from the distant future, or even ones that are actually just supernatural but contemporary? Or are they all kind of grounded in this thing that, that predates us by centuries or millennia? Do we find books that are coded as participating in the horror genre looking to the future? Or have those been kind of relegated to science fiction? Uh, I'll keep you posted. Bob, talk to you later. Talk to you later, Zach.